If I told you that you have preeclampsia, would you have any idea what I'm talking about? It's one of those words that we hear from friends who might get diagnosed or family members who've been anxious to get it, but we never quite know what it is or what to look for. And in fact, it is one of the most common pregnancy complications. However, if diagnosed, it doesn't mean that there will be a severe case and can be treated very simply. But if it goes undetected, it could be fatal. So what are the symptoms? Who is at risk? And what do we need to know if we get the diagnosis? Dr. Nicole Rankins is a board-certified practicing OBGYN and a mom of two who has dealt with many expecting mamas that have been diagnosed with preeclampsia. Over the last 15 years, she's helped more than 1,000 babies come into this world, and she is here to share with us what we need to know to stay healthy. She's also the host of the podcast, All About Pregnancy and Birth, and stay tuned to the end to hear all about her comprehensive birth preparation course. You're listening to the Mamas in Training podcast, giving aspiring and expecting mamas guidance and community from moms who have been there. I'm your host, Jessica Lorian. However, I'm not yet a mom. An autoimmune disease has delayed my journey into motherhood. So I made it my mission while I heal to learn with you all about motherhood. So together we can be as prepared as possible, even for something like preeclampsia. While many may think that preeclampsia won't affect them, that is simply not true. Now, some mamas definitely have to be more cautious and advocate for themselves more than others, and Dr. Rankins will speak to that today. But overall, we can all be prone to this pregnancy complication. So, it's time to learn all about preeclampsia and how you can advocate for yourself on this episode of Mamas in Training. This episode is sponsored by Boom Boom Blowout Bodysuits. Picture this, you're out for a day of errands with your baby. They've already soaked their fresh diaper and the extras you brought, but after a quick change, they're finally sleeping. So you grab yourself a quick coffee, but then they wake up screaming. So you pick them up and what is on your hands? It's a blowout. There goes the last diaper, the baby's clothes, and your own clothes. Well, with Boom Boom Blowout bodysuits, diaper blowouts are covered. Literally, the entire back of each bodysuit contains waterproof polyurethane laminate fabric that is bonded between two layers of super soft, unbleached organic cotton, making blowouts no longer a stress. Trust me, I saw it in action, and it's amazing how strong these bodysuits are. So this Mother's Day, Treat yourself to less stress and let Boom Boom Baby Company cover that mess by clicking the link in the show notes and using the code MAMASPOD25. That's M-A-M-A-S-P-O-D-25 for 25% off at checkout because nobody has time for a blowout. And now here is Dr. Nicole Rankins. One of the stories that sticks out The most to me is a woman who I met during the course of her labor, which is what I do these days because I work as a hospitalist. So I only work in the hospital. So I'm an OB hospitalist and I met her during her labor and she was diagnosed with 
severe preeclampsia. And she was previously healthy, no problems with the pregnancy, normal weight, no health issues at all, perfectly normal pregnancy. And then around 36 weeks developed not just preeclampsia, but severe preeclampsia and the most severe variant of severe preeclampsia, which is something called HELP syndrome. It's H-E-L-L-P and it stands for hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes and low platelets. And it's when preeclampsia affects other organ systems as well. So in this particular case, she had high blood pressure. It was affecting her liver. It was affecting her platelets, which affect the ability of the blood to clot. And it was also affecting the kidneys, her kidneys. So it was like multi-system issues. She was getting pretty sick. It can be devastating. It can be overwhelming when you previously were healthy and then all of a sudden you get hit with this very severe condition and can be very, very sick from it. She also really, really wanted to have a vaginal birth, like really wanted to have a Mm. vaginal birth. That was really important to her. Many people would have just wanted to go to a C-section just to try to expedite the birth, but she really wanted a vaginal birth. So we kept pressing on and ultimately she did have a vaginal birth, which was lovely. And she ultimately got better. And the even better part of this story is that when she was pregnant for the second time, she came back and I happened to be there again for this birth. And despite the fact that it's totally random that we met each other both times. And the second time she didn't have preeclampsia. And I just remember her being so grateful when she saw me that I was there again and that I was so supportive of her during her first pregnancy and her having a vaginal birth. So that it encompasses so much in that story. One, that people can get very sick from preeclampsia, even being previously healthy, but you can also get well, you can also have a vaginal birth and you can go on again in a subsequent pregnancy and not necessarily have preeclampsia. So now for her or anybody else that might experience this, you mentioned her case was extremely severe, but what are we physically seeing when we get that diagnosis? What is happening to our bodies? At baseline, preeclampsia starts with high blood pressure. It's, it's almost unheard of. There are some atypical variants, but 90 plus percent of the time, it starts with high blood pressure. And by high blood pressure, I mean the top number, uh, the systolic blood pressure is 140 or greater. Um, In the severe variant, it's 160 or greater. And the bottom number, diastolic, is 90 or greater. And in severe, 110 or greater. So first Mm. is high blood pressure. Then also protein in the urine uh, comes with preeclampsia. And that's a manifestation of how it affects the kidneys. And those two things alone are enough to diagnose preeclampsia. You have to have elevated blood pressure six hours apart that were previously normal. And what's happening is is we believe, honestly, we don't completely understand what causes preeclampsia, but we believe it's a vascular disease where blood vessels in the body are affected. So your vasculature, you have issues with your um, constriction of blood vessels. It can impact blood flow to the placenta as a result, affect the baby's growth. Um, It can affect blood flow to the kidneys. The headaches are thought to be from uh, constriction of blood vessels in the brain. So really we think it's a vascular condition. And what are we seeing symptom-wise? You know, like, Mm -hmm. is there anything that we can, you know, unless we're taking our blood pressure daily? Right. Right. I mean, maybe that's something we should be doing, but what can we notice? 
What a lot of people don't know is that prenatal care was actually designed to detect for preeclampsia. Like that was why prenatal care came about to periodically check blood pressure. Uh, And so really blood pressure is the first thing. And then other symptoms that you may see are a headache, particularly a headache that is not relieved by over-the-counter medication. You can see visual changes like blurred vision, spots going through your vision, or like floaters. And right upper quadrant pain or pain in the belly is a a sign of more severe preeclampsia. Swelling used to be part of the definition, but swelling is so common in pregnancy that it's been taken out as official um, diagnostic criteria. But Mm. really it's going to start with blood pressure. And then if you have headache, blurred vision, pain, those are things to be on the lookout for. And the other thing that I tell women that I often see, this isn't like official, but I, I see it a lot is that people have a sense that they just don't feel right that something Mm -hmm. feels off, something feels unusual, can't put my finger on it, but I just don't feel well. And that can often be associated with preeclampsia as well. I know when my doing my research, I discovered obviously all of these beautiful words that we have in our language (laughs) come from somewhere. And eclampsia is the actual extreme severe condition, right? Is that yes. how that works eclampsia, out? Eclampsia is when it's seizures on top of the blood pressure issue. So eclampsia is when there's a seizure with it. And that's like the most extensive form. Thankfully, thankfully I have only seen that in my 15-year career twice that somebody's had eclampsia. But eclampsia okay. is when, when people have a seizure. Clearly, you mentioned in your story of that patient, she was healthy and she mm-hmm. was not experiencing anything Mm -hmm. out of the ordinary necessarily. Is there anything we can do to prevent this? The only thing that we know that prevents preeclampsia, and I actually get this question a lot from folks, whether or not this is safe, and I can tell you that it's it's truly safe, is baby aspirin. Mm -hmm. And taking a baby aspirin daily, and actually it's recommended that for people that are at higher risk of preeclampsia, so if you are black, if you are overweight, if you have hypertension, if you have some um, like diabetes, or if you're over 35, that you take a baby aspirin once a day, and that can reduce your risk of preeclampsia. That is the only thing that we know that can reduce your risk of preeclampsia is a daily baby aspirin. And we think it's because of the way aspirin affects our vascular system. And why is it that black women are more at risk? Um, anything... Whoever figures that out is going to win win the prize of the year. A Nobel Prize in medicine, yes. Yeah, yeah, I exactly. mean, we, we know that black women are at risk for so many adverse outcomes. Right. And a lot of that is related to racism, quite frankly, and the way that black women are treated in the healthcare system. Because we know that even things like education and income don't correct from it. That maternal mortality, for instance, is the same as, and I'm highly educated and compensated, is the same as a a white woman who has a high school education. So we know that Mm. there's something that's beyond it and that something is racism. And we think that's related to the way that people are treated at large in society. Mm -hmm. Um, So people look for some things like, are there genetic variants? But we don't know exactly why black women are at higher risk other than that underlying, you know, experiencing racism. And pregnancy-related mortality, the rate of that for black women is 5.2 times higher than that of white women. 
Is that correct? That is the case for educated, so women who have a college education. Overall, when you look at all the numbers, it's roughly three to four times. So not that, wow. you know, three to four to five. It's, it's, there, it's there's a huge no jump number between. is better, right? <laughs> yes, like, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes. So it shouldn't be any times higher. Low, yes. On the low end, it's three times some data or some segments of the populations. It's as high as five times. Also, depending on where you live in the country, it can be higher. And for the black community, then, what does it come down to? Does it come down to advocating for yourself, getting more information? I mean, so in the U.S. obstetric system, I mean, in general, at baseline, it's a system that has a patriarchal approach to birth, can sometimes take away power. And that is the case really for anybody who's entering the system. So regardless of what you look like, and then they're marginalized communities like black women who are going to experience it at higher rates and so have additional burdens when they enter the system. And it's not the case for everybody. Uh, Obviously, not every single doctor or hospital or nurse is bad, but there's more problems than it should be. So it's really important for people who are at higher risk for problems like black women to really be ready to advocate for yourself. So educate yourself so you are able to advocate for yourself. And definitely, I think very important to have someone with you who can advocate for you on your behalf if you're not able to advocate for yourself, because sometimes you may not be able to. So whether that's a partner, whether that's a family member, a friend, a doula, who feels comfortable advocating on your behalf when you're not able to advocate for yourself. And also for everyone to be insistent until you get answers about outcomes. Um, Probably Serena Williams is the biggest example of someone Mm -hmm. who's like wealthy, has all of the things in place. And she wasn't listened to when she said she was worried that she was having another blood clot. So you can imagine the type of difficulties that the average person experiences getting heard. So you have to be persistent until you get responses because it honestly and truly can be a life and death situation. I don't want to be dramatic about it. That is the reality of it. So you have to keep pressing until you feel like your concerns are addressed. I think though, Dr. Rankins, when you say like, I don't want to be dramatic about it, I think that's almost what we need to stop doing. You're not being dramatic about it. You're telling facts. And that's, that is very true. You know, it's like, I think that's part of the the problem. I'm white and many of the white community will say that black women or women of color are being dramatic about something. Mm -hmm. And then they're going into their checkup and they know, like you mentioned, you might know deep down something's not right because we've lived with our body for 20, 30, 40 years. We know what our body feels like. We are the only ones that know. And so... For us to step in and say, there's something wrong, and then to have somebody potentially say or even think they're being dramatic about this, they're not. They're just any other person that's standing up for what they feel is, is, is wrong with themselves. 100%. I had a, a birth photographer on my podcast, and she was a white woman, and she said, that she too hadn't realized some of the challenges that black people face in maternal health until she herself had black clients and white clients. And she could see at one particular hospital, she said at one hospital it wasn't the case, but at another hospital it was the case, drastic differences in the way people were treated. You don't hire a birth photographer unless you have some sort of disposable income. So it wasn't like, you know, these were all people that, 
had insurance and means and things like that, but treated drastically different. So we're not making this up. It's right. it's the reality of what of what happens, unfortunately, for some folks. And one thing that I've heard, and maybe you can shine a light on this too, is sometimes I think, especially if we don't have that extra security basket to just spend money on this or on that and have all these specialists and people helping us, women might be a little hesitant to get something like a doula because maybe they think it's, you know, a prohibitive cost that they, they mm-hmm. just can't have. But there are ways that we can find doulas who are a little bit more manageable financially. Is that correct? Yeah, some doulas do work on maybe a sliding scale, um, or you may be able to find a doula who is in training. So maybe her rates are a little bit mm, that's a lower. Also, one of the things I recommend is that, especially like babylist.com, you can put anything on your registry. So instead of yes. putting like, you know, 45 onesies, you can add, like, mm-hmm. can you contribute to help me get a doula instead yeah. of getting things like clothes or, or, or things like that. So there are definitely creative ways that you can try and, and get a doula. Some hospitals actually are starting to offer doulas like through the hospital also as well. So if we are diagnosed with preeclampsia, mm-hmm. maybe there we're told to take a baby aspirin. If it gets to the point that it's just too much and our body can't take it anymore, what do we do? Is there a cure? Is is there a way that we can manage it? Yeah. So the treatment for preeclampsia is delivery. So that is the only thing that we know that fixes preeclampsia is delivery. And really the benefit to delivery is for the benefit of mom. It's not for the benefit of baby. The treatment for preeclampsia to help reduce the risk of mom developing eclampsia, so seizure or stroke, is delivery. So if anyone develops severe preeclampsia at any point in pregnancy, then sometimes we can what's called expectantly manage it or watch it up until 34 weeks. But at 34 weeks, the risk of staying pregnant outweighed the benefits. So if you have severe preeclampsia, we're going to induce your labor, recommend induction at 34 weeks. If you have preeclampsia without severe features, then 37 weeks, we can go up until 37 weeks. And then in that case, we recommend labor induction for the, the benefit of mom. And the things that we're trying to specifically, again, prevent are uh, eclampsia and strokes, but then also stillbirth. We don't still, there's an increased risk of stillbirth with with preeclampsia as well. There's an increased risk of placenta abruption, potentially where there are issues with the placenta. So we're trying to prevent those negative effects from happening as well as keep mom's health safe. How do we know though, like the, the line? So you mentioned that your patient really wanted to have a natural birth. Mm-hmm. And it seems like was was pretty adamant about that mm-hmm. happening. Mm-hmm. So where do we draw the line of like advocating for what we want and what mm-hmm. we know that we need, mm-hmm. but also trusting that the doctor is saying, no, we don't have time for a natural birth. We need to have sure. a C-section or, you know, how yeah, do we balance that? That's where you have to have some faith and trust in that. Hopefully you've had a good relationship with your providers going throughout your pregnancy So you know that going into this, that they are making recommendations that are in your best interest. And Mm -hmm. then if people are making recommendations that you aren't comfortable with, then ask why. So if someone's saying, 
you need to have a C-section, then ask, well, why is it that I have to have a C-section? Why can't I have a vaginal birth? What are the risks of continuing to go along with a vaginal birth or whatever the thing is that they're, you know, that you want, that they're saying that you shouldn't have. Just being clear that you understand exactly why a recommendation is being done. I think this is something that we don't always do a great job of because we see things on a regular basis and we don't always remember that for the person in front of the, in front of us, this is new to them. Like it's completely new to them. So we have to take a moment to explain like why we're recommending a certain thing and the alternatives if we don't do that that thing right and and conversely it's like the mamas in training who are going through this for the first time are sometimes just trusting that okay whatever they say is what we have to do but we can take a step back as well and say okay great let's lay out all of our possibilities and ask those questions take that time to ask those questions as long as it's not a life and death situation, of course. Yeah, there's very rare. You hear people a lot say things like, I had an emergency C-section, when in actuality, true emergency C-sections are are not that common. So when people say emergency C-sections, often they're talking about, the doctor said I had to, see, had to have a C-section, and then 20 or 30 minutes later, I was in the operating room and having a C-section. So that yeah, is more just like an ur- unexpected. <laughs> yes, right. it's unexpected it. <laughs> or right or it's or even urgent. True emergency is like we are ripping the cords out of the wall, running down right. the hall, craziness. So what I'm saying all that to say is that there is almost always an opportunity to pause, mm. ask questions and get clarification before you move on to the next step even so far as asking somebody like can you step out of the room for a second so we can talk about you know so I can talk about things um so you almost always have time to pause for a moment and get some clarity on something before you move forward in general I find that when people are dissatisfied with the way things go people aren't dissatisfied because they had a c-section they're dissatisfied because they felt like they weren't part of the decision-making process they weren't involved in things they didn't feel informed about what was going on when you take a step back and you feel informed and you feel better and that you controlled as much as you could control because a lot of it is out of your control out of anybody's control really yeah (laughs) yeah absolutely and I think that tip is really key just knowing that there is more time than it may seem Mm -hmm. because then something that you might label as emergency or traumatic could flip the switch a little bit and you could maybe just know that it didn't go the path that you chose but at least Mm -hmm. you felt somehow a a part of it and in control a little bit um absolutely within those lines yeah so if we then go through the you know only cure by delivering however we Mm -hmm. then deliver Mm -hmm. is it like oh you're cured preeclampsia is gone or is there something else that we need to then continue to do and work on to make sure can it come back you know, having something once does increase your risk of having it again. So there's roughly about a 20, 25% chance that preeclampsia will recur in another pregnancy. So most often it actually may not occur again, but it will after delivery, we watch blood pressures, but very shortly after delivery, it tends to get better very quickly. Mm. So um, yes, in that regard. Um, Now, there are a couple of caveats. Occasionally, people actually develop, um, this is a little bit separate but related. Sometimes people won't develop preeclampsia until they are postpartum. 
So you can actually, in rare circumstances, develop postpartum preeclampsia, which is weird because we say the treatment is delivery, right? But in action, but it is possible to develop it within the first six weeks postpartum. So we do keep an eye out for blood pressure. We have you come back a week later to make sure things are better. So you have a little bit closer follow up. Also, what I don't think we do a good job of explaining to folks is that, unfortunately, preeclampsia in pregnancy actually puts you at higher risk throughout your lifetime for cardiovascular events like a heart attack. So Mm. you have to be mindful of things like making sure your cholesterol is okay and and trying to keep your weight as healthy and keep active because it actually does increase your risk of having a cardiovascular problem as you get older. Yeah, that's something so interesting because, yeah, I think oftentimes we would just think, oh, we gave birth, our numbers dropped down, we should be good. But it it could be something more long-term that comes back in Mm -hmm. the future. Not common, but it can happen. Are there any misconceptions about preeclampsia or things that we don't really think about? Yeah, I would say the biggest ones are that anybody can get it. I've seen it in... Young folks, older folks, skinny folks, like literally Mm -hmm. anybody can get it. The second one is that it can actually happen postpartum, which is rare. And the third is just really know that you you didn't do anything wrong. It, It is not a disease that we necessarily understand why it happens, but it's not something that you did something wrong or you ate something or you didn't do this or that right. It it unfortunately happens. And the other thing I like folks to know, and I don't know if this is a misconception, is that most people with preeclampsia do just fine, have no problems, deliver. Most people do not get very sick from it. We take care of it, and it's not an issue. But we have to be vigilant about it to make sure that that's the case. Now, especially in talking about advocating for yourself, because I think that that's one of the biggest takeaways. I mean, we always talk about this on the show, but that's one of the biggest takeaways within preeclampsia. And knowing that something is not right did you have an experience within that where you felt like you needed and did advocate for yourself and if so what did that look like oh that's a good question my preterm labor was um I just knew I just started having contractions and when I went to the hospital it was obvious that I was in preterm labor unfortunately Mm -hmm. so I didn't have to do that and I and I had the advantage of I gave birth where I did my residency training. So I knew people, people were going to listen to me regardless. Um, I will say in the NICU, the NICU is a a little different. Not that I felt like I had to advocate for myself or for my child. I would say in general, there was one instance where right after her surgery, she, during the surgery, she had a tube down her throat so she could breathe, you know, a breathing Mm. tube. And they took it out a little bit too early and she like stopped like I saw it when they took it out and she like stopped breathing Hmm. and they were they had to like put the tube back in and I remember standing there and I was like a hot mess and they really Hmm. wanted me to like move and not watch them what they were doing and I just refused to to move like no I'm gonna gonna sit here and see what's going on with my child so that's the only instance where I really felt like I had to push and say like no, you are not removing me from this room. I am going to stand here and, you know, why, why I'm here yeah. and see what's what's going on with my baby. But thankfully, I personally have not had to had those type of things 
happen, most likely because I, I am a physician and you know I am an OBGYN and typically where I was having care, people knew me. But obviously my reflection is not necessarily what happens for everyone. And I think like you mentioned, having a doula, having a partner who can maybe help you, a family member, mm-hmm. a friend who can just be there to not necessarily speak for you, but keep you in line and and accountable to yourself and what you want and desire and kind of just being that little angel on your shoulder saying like, by the way, this is what you wanted. Or even sometimes it may unfortunately be like speaking for the person. Like I'm thinking of a story. There was an epidemiologist who worked for the CDC who died after her delivery because of blood pressure problems and Mm. she kept being told that oh things are okay and kept getting sent home and her mother in hindsight says she wished she would have been stronger about like and this was a black woman do not leave you have to get answers like you you it's okay if you have a little bit of mistrust and it's okay if you sometimes escalate things. Oh, one more thing I like to say is that when you are advocating, sometimes people confuse advocating with, with, with being mean or demanding or forceful. And sometimes you do have to go there, but actually it can work really well to try to connect with people on a human level. Like Mm -hmm. I'm scared because I have seen the stories about maternal mortality and I have seen the stories about high blood pressure and I'm scared about what's going to happen to my life. I am worried that I'm not going to be able to get home to my child. So connect on a human level and get people to address those human emotions. And that often can grab people and help them to wake up and see like, hey, pay attention to me. How do we advocate for ourselves? That's that's sometimes the question that you just answered that we always <laughs> just say, you know, do this, do this, do this. But <laughs> it is interesting because oftentimes we don't think like you get more with honey than what is it? Like we get more with honey. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you can't you, you, you catch more uh, bees yes. with honey or, yes. or more flies with honey than with whatever it is. Yes. yes. It's like I'll have to look it up and get it out. Yeah. Yes. You know, you know what I mean? We're on the same yes. page. Yeah. And I think that connection too toward your vulnerability of just saying like, mm-hmm. this is what I'm scared of so that it's not being yelled at or attacking or anything like exactly. that. Because of course that's just going to push, push somebody away. Yeah. Now I know that you have an absolutely fantastic birth preparation course which Mm -hmm. is something that I wanted to make sure I give you an opportunity to touch on because these are things that, you know, maybe we have a provider or maybe we found someone that we even love, but connecting with somebody who can really, who's been in the field, who's been through it, who's seen it all and who's created something like this, like you have, is just absolutely fantastic and a great partner for our birth experience. So I'd love for you to share what that is and how people can get their hands on it. Yeah, so my course is called the Birth Preparation Course, um, and I'm very proud of it. It's completely online, so I know some folks are looking for in-person options. That's totally fine, but uh, my course is completely online. You can do it at your own pace. You can do it with your partner. It's great, and it covers everything from your mindset. Like It actually starts off with the mindset piece for your birth because that's so important. Um, Mm -hmm. talks about your support, helps you understand all the details of labor and birth and specifically how it works in the hospital Mm -hmm. and um, not just birth in the hospital, but also what's happening in your body as well, of course. 
And then you get prepared for, what I call prepare for the possibilities. Birth is an unpredictable process. And so being able to manage and navigate those curveballs when they come, like if you need to be induced or if the discussion of cesarean comes up, how to make sure you feel like you're an informed participant in your care. And then also some um, information on the postpartum period and getting off to a great start postpartum because having the baby is just the beginning, especially those first six weeks postpartum, the changes that are happening in your body, how to navigate things and more focused on mom, not necessarily so much with baby, but really focusing on what's happening with you postpartum because you still deserve some attention to postpartum and then making a birth plan. So many people do birth plans and then just like download a template or form, which is completely inadequate. Really a birth plan needs to be a discussion about making sure and figuring out that the people who are on your birth team actually support what you want for your birth. And that's something that needs to happen during your prenatal visits. If you wait until you get to the hospital and just hand this piece of paper to someone, that is entirely too late. So that's a summary of of the course. And you can find it on my website. And anybody who you can use the code Dr. Nicole, D-R-N-I-C-O-L-E, and you can get a discount on the course. Amazing. I'll have that linked easy in the show notes so people can connect to it. And that's what we need. All those areas lined out for us. And especially, you know, as we talk about preeclampsia, navigating those curveballs, because we don't know if it's going to come up and being prepared to, you know, maybe take the baby aspirin or maybe go into a delivery sooner than we expected is important for us to know. So I'm so grateful that you included that. The course also comes, there's a private Facebook group for the course um, where you can connect with other folks who are going through similar things. And I'm, of course, I'm in the group as as well, providing additional support. And the community manager for the group is an experienced doula. So lots of resources there to, to help as well. Resources and information. Those are two of the most important things you need when preparing for motherhood so that you can properly advocate for yourself. And now that you have the information of what preeclampsia is and how it can manifest, I want to encourage you, ask what your blood pressure is at your appointments. Have that conversation with your provider in case you need to manage the diagnosis of preeclampsia. And when speaking with your provider, the phrase is, you can catch more flies with honey than vinegar. So be vulnerable with your words as opposed to aggressive, and this will help your provider hear you more efficiently. So you have the information. Now you need the resources. All of the episodes of this show are here for you as a resource, but if you want to have the resource of hundreds of women who've been in your shoes so you can learn from them and what they wish they had known, then join us in the free Facebook group, Mamas in Training. All you have to do is click on the link in the show notes that says Facebook community, and you can connect today with more resources than you can imagine. You know, support and community go hand in hand with resources and information. We can't do this alone. We're in this together, and I cannot wait to connect with you more over on Facebook. If you enjoyed the show today, new episodes release every Wednesday. So be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And help us grow our mama community by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. That way I know how to better serve you. 
And finally, I would love to connect on Instagram. You can find me at Mamas in Training Pod. That's M A M A S in Training P O D. For Mamas in Training, I'm Jessica Lorian. We're in this together.